There were two waves traveling along in the ocean together, um, a small wave and a large wave. And the, lar- the big wave could see far into the distance because he's tall. And as they're getting closer and closer to the shore, the big wave can see that every other wave in front of them would get to the shore and crash. And all of a sudden he realized, hey, we're headed in the direction of the shore. Not a single wave doesn't crash when it gets to the shore. And there's no way to go backwards. And we're going in that direction. And he starts to get very agitated and he starts to cry. And the little wolf can't see any of this. And so he doesn't know what's going on. So he, he asks his friend, why are you crying? What's going on? What's the big deal? And the big wave says, if I told you, you know, you'd be so depressed. There, this is a really bad situation. I can't tell you. And the little wave says, no, come on, tell me. So the big wave says, okay, every single wave before us crashes when it gets to the shore we're going in that direction. There's no way out. There's no way back. It's pretty awful. And the little wave takes a few minutes to think about it and then says, you know what? I can tell you in seven words why this is not a problem. And the big wave doesn't really believe him, but he says, okay. And then the little wave says, you're not just a wave, you're water. And that's the end of the story. And the implication being that Although we are, each of us, in our own lives, our own unique waves of beings um, with our own histories and our own shapes and thoughts and races and ethnicities and religions and beauties, when we get to the shore and when we crash and, all, and really the entire time we're alive, we are also at the very same time kind of made of all things. We're made of this substrate that one could call God or you could just scientifically say we're completely connected and interpenetrated with all things at all time that is constantly changing. That's the water. And so I think a large part of becoming who we're meant to be is tapping into both our wave and our water-like nature all the time. Welcome back, and thank you for listening to another episode of The Newest Jewish. I'm your host, Jesse Cerati, and I'm very excited to have Yael Shai with me today to talk about the impact of studying other religions, faiths, and multiculturalism, as well as talk about her new book, What Now? Meditation for Your 20s and Beyond. Before that, I want to talk a bit about a little holiday that's approaching you may have heard of called Thanksgiving. I want to keep this brief but I think it would be a disservice not to bring up the holiday, a holiday in which many ways celebrates bringing people together, much like successful multicultural learning. Thanksgiving brings communities together over food, a sense of festivity, and freedom of expression. It brings extended families and friends together, despite political animosity, and despite any negative preconceptions of the others. Many cultures and religions have other days that might resemble this, And at the same time, I also recognize that Thanksgiving is uniquely an American custom. It is also an American custom that has grown out of America's greatest lie. We call it an American holiday. Yet the true Native Americans, who had their land stolen from them, are for the most part not celebrating. No, they are in mourning. 
An article that was written by John Tuhawks on the first Thanksgiving accurately notes that the holiday we call Thanksgiving traces back, for the most part, to 1637, when colonists in modern-day New England celebrated the execution of hundreds of Pequot Native Americans. Now, 16 years prior to this, a more unofficial Thanksgiving meal was served after a wall was built at a settlement in Plymouth for the specific purpose of separating the Wampanoag and Narragansett, who had been living there far before the pilgrims arrived a year prior. I want to note that it was uh, really nice seeing the most just voices of this country provide support and stand in solidarity with the people of Standing Rock Indian Reservation last year and attempt to help this land's natives hold on to the little bit of land and the diminished rights that they have left. History books and childish stories have convinced a 241-year-old nation that we are the uniters, not conquerors, that the history of Thanksgiving is one of sharing with one another, not that of taking and killing. But this is our history. And acts of solidarity today, while some are imminently important in combating a destructive government, most acts of solidarity are merely symbolic at this point. Perhaps it's not that much fun reflecting on this kind of past, but it's absolutely necessary. Yes, of course we should keep coming together. Yes, we should keep traditions vibrant and alive, but let's also, you know, take the opportunities we're given when we come together to educate and demand equity for our native brothers and sisters who have had generations of history stolen. And let us learn from this scrubbed past and be advocates for ending oppression, occupation, and atrocities of all sorts where they occur today and where they will be occurring tomorrow. When we come together and learn from each other, we become greater than the sum of our parts. There may be nobody who knows us better than my guest today, Yael Shai. Now, Yael is the founder and director of Mindful NYU and the senior director at NYU Global Spiritual Life. Growing up Jewish and being a student of Buddhist and Zen practices, Yael has become a bold leader in New York City, touching the lives of students every day from incredibly diverse cultural and religious backgrounds. A major component of opening up yourself to multiple perspectives on the world, Yael has noted, comes in the form of meditation and mindfulness practices. Last week, I had the pleasure of attending the launch of Yael's new book, What Now? Meditation for Your 20s and Beyond. Introducing the book launch was actually Chelsea Clinton, who has stated, Never arrogant, deeply humble, and always purposeful. What now makes a strong case for why meditation can help anyone better understand a moment or a life, one lived and one still unfolding? Hi, Al. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. I'm so excited to have you as a guest. Uh, when I actually started building the show, the idea of it was to highlight a diversity of opinions and this generation's interest in reaching out and learning about other communities, in doing so, strengthening our own identities. In the forward to your book, uh, you, have you have been described as a unicorn, someone who has raised Jewish, studied Zen, and has become an expert in speaking about both of those and just being an expert in the study of multiple faiths. Uh, I'd really like to hear about how these studies have impacted your personal growth to this point. Yeah, thank you for, for having me, Jesse. It's very, um, very nice to be here and chatting with you. And I 
really consider myself deeply um, a part of Judaism. I never left Judaism, and it really means a lot to me. My mother's a rabbi, and I grew up pretty observant. Um, my husband is um, Jewish, and we're raising our family Jewish, and so it's definitely like an everyday part of my life. And But it has been deeply enhanced and deepened, as has my whole life been enhanced and deepened by my exposure and study in the Buddhist world. Um, I was it. I was a member of the Zen Brooklyn Zen Center and on their board and in various co- different leadership capacities for many years. I think six years. Um, and although I'm no longer practicing there as regularly as I once was, I still really value and care about Buddhist wisdom and Buddhist teachers, and I'm constantly taking classes and trying to just further my own knowledge. So I think it's hard to um, to live in both traditions because they're both such rich, deep, endlessly complex traditions. Uh, but I think the way that the ways they work together, the ways they complement each other, the ways they deepen each other has really added so much to my life. And the book reflects that. And you also have, uh, you're also the director at the executive director at NYU Global Spiritual Center uh, at uh, Mindful NYU as well. Can you just speak a little bit about how you've seen students, the thousands of students that you get to see every year learning about meditation, the impact it's had on them? Yes. Uh, it's the joy of my life to work with college students. I just love it. I love it so much. I think people in that age range college and some graduate students as well, people just outside of college, but um, it's such a pivotal time and a scary time and overwhelming time, but a time when um, I think their minds are ready to take on really complicated, mind-changing, life-changing things like I believe like a real commitment to a meditation practice will bring. Um, and at the same time, they need it so badly. They're experiencing a lot of stress from different corners of their lives, and they're starting to define who they are in the world and how they want their life to look. And so we see students every single day. We, see, we have meditation classes every day of the week, nearly four times a week. Um, we have yoga classes twice a day, every day for free. And so we see people coming in for just like your run of the mill, I want to, I just want to relax to I'm having um, an existential crisis about what is my point here living on this earth today. And it's just a pleasure and a joy to be able to work with them and hear their wisdom and guide them through to become leaders in our community and in their own communities. And so that's, uh, that's the work that we do. And I think I want to also bring in kind of that component of NYU's Global Spiritual Center and being a place that kind of fosters multi-faith learning. How do you see the interaction really take form between students from different ethnic backgrounds and the practice of meditation and mindfulness? It's a very good question, yes. So just to give a little clarity to our structure. So Global Spiritual Life is the overarching umbrella 
Uh, and within Global Spiritual Life, we have housed our uh, interfaith center. We have housed Mindful NYU, which is our meditation and contemplative life programs. And then we oversee all religious life on campus. So that's all your basic Bible studies and worship services and the rest. And so um, the joy of having all of that in one area, because in many universities, it's not. The meditation comes out of like the health center or and the religions each have their own little silos. But at NYU, um, people of every background are interacting with each other. They're connecting with each other. They're um, getting challenged in their own beliefs. And yet they're also having the opportunity to educate one another about their beliefs. And what we've seen, and I think this is all borne out by the research, is that there's this huge number of people that don't identify as any specific religion, but are seekers. They call themselves spiritual, but not religious, or they're just kind of open to asking bigger questions. And so we have a large contingent of those folks as well. And it's nice to keep them within our kind of larger interfaith, multi-faith umbrella, because it feels like there's a place for everyone. Do you have any specific stories of like real success stories from students that have thrived in that program? Yeah, we have a, a council, and it's our kind of top leadership council every year called the Multi-Faith Advisory Council. And they end up, they start out just, they apply to be in the program and they have to sh- demonstrate leadership in whatever s- spiritual or faith tradition they come from. And then over the course of the year, I mean, it's amazing. You see people really showing up for one another. So we just recently had a vigil for Las Vegas, the shooting in Las Vegas, for instance. And the student who organized it was in this council, and he is the head of the Muslim Student Association, and he is um, from Las Vegas. And he organized, he ended up organizing this massive vigil for all students from across the university. And all of the Multi-Faith Advisory Council students came and brought their individual community members. So they brought the people from Hillel and they brought the people from, the, you know, one student would bring the person from Hillel, the other person would bring their entire meditation group. And it was just so beautiful to see that in like these times of difficulty and pain, they're there for one another. And then over every week they meet and laugh and, you know, hang out and they're just friends. And uh, I think that there's, that's why we do this work is to just really build and solidify these relationships. And can you just, just really briefly talk about some of the different religious leaders that are involved uh, within the global spiritual life umbrella as well? Yes. So at NYU, we actually have 70 chaplain affiliates who come from almost 20 different religious denominations, um, and they are intimately connected to the work that we're doing. Our co-founders were our, our rabbi, um, Yehuda Sarna, our camp university chaplain, and our imam, Khalid Latif, and that by itself is pretty unusual. Uh, a film was actually made about their friendship called Of Many, and uh, it was a, um, an, it's an amazing film that you can watch now on Vimeo. 
That's right, right? <laughs> and, um, and so we have, uh, and then we have chaplains from pretty much every different religious tradition, or maybe not everyone, but a lot. We have Hindu chaplains and Sikh chaplains and Buddhist chaplains and many Christian chaplains, Catholic chaplains. And so and they're involved in our work constantly. And then we also partner with local organizations, interfaith groups to do larger scale programs like the Interfaith Center of New York or Auburn Seminary. And I want to shift a little bit to talk about you and kind of how you kind of found your way into this world a little bit. You didn't really start getting into meditation until you were in college. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Can you just share a little bit about that story and how that's kind of created an impact onto your role today? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the main reasons why I wanted to start the the meditation program at NYU is because I was suffering so much as a college student at NYU 15 years ago, and a little more actually. Um, and I was lonely. I was extremely anxious. I had a, um, was having regular panic attacks. I was experiencing some PTSD from September 11th, which happened uh, 15 minutes from my dorm room, and my. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. My relationship had ended. My parents were getting divorced. And I just felt like the structure of my life was sort of coming apart at the seams. And I looked around and there was not a whole lot at the time for people like me who, yeah, I I was Jewish, but I didn't feel so connected to any Jewish community. Um, And I didn't feel like anyone was specifically addressing this feeling of being just completely lost and trying to figure out who I was. And I'm so grateful that actually I I heard about a meditation, Jewish meditation retreat that was happening um, in the woods around Christmas time, my junior year. And I went and I think I was the youngest person there by probably 45 years, (laughs) by quite a lot. Um, But the teachers and the content and the practice of meditation from really morning till night while being extremely overwhelming for a new meditator um, changed my whole life. It really transformed the way that I saw my suffering, my anxiety, my loneliness. And even though it took many years of continuing to go back and continuing to practice, Uh, I think the fabric of who I am, the amount of suffering I was carrying and that I no longer carry has just been remarkable. And so I've really kind of dedicated my life to doing this work with with this same age range because I know how much it helped me. Yeah, I really like the way that you're able to talk about multi-faith learning and meditation learning really as two things kind of kind of running parallel to each other. Um, I also am curious, because you talk a lot in your book about mindfulness. And for somebody who has doesn't have much experience in this world, can you share a little bit what really is the difference when you talk about meditation versus mindfulness? Sure. So mindfulness is kind of a buzzword these days. Um, in fact, I think the publisher actually said we're not allowed to even put mindfulness in a title anymore because it's been like way overused and under 
not understood. Um, I heard your title had changed a few times, actually. <laughs> is, that, is that correct? That is correct. Uh, I, yeah, I came up with a bunch of things that they did not like. Um, I think my I am not born to be a marketer in any way, <laughs> shape, or form, so, but I love what, what they came up with, which was what now meditation for your 20s and beyond. Um, but the definition, so meditation is a practice um, where generally you focus on one um, mechanism. So oftentimes it's the breath or it's the uh, feeling of your body in a chair. Or if it's walking meditation, it's the feeling of the bottom of your feet. And it's this practice of over and over again bringing your attention to one particular area or to one focus. It could be a word like a mantra. And uh, and and that is generally meditation. It is it is a practice within this larger umbrella of um, of um, practices. Mindfulness is also a practice, but it's um, it's sort of meditation in action. It, mindfulness is when you are bringing all of your attention and all of your awareness to whatever you're doing in that moment. So meditation is a type of of mindfulness, but mindfulness can also be um, paying attention with all of your attention to the food that you're eating, to the um, place that you're walking, to a conversation with someone where you're really focused in and you're concentrating, you're paying attention rather than your mind in a million places at once or, you know, half on your phone or anything like that. So that's the sort of shorthand. I think, truthfully, that mindfulness now in our um, common way of using it has actually served as a replacement for Buddhism um, because I think that a lot of the practices we talk about under the umbrella of mindfulness actually are not just about um, the foundations of mindfulness, which is the Buddhist text where mindfulness is mentioned, but also talking about compassion practices and touching into one's emotions and um, sending out loving kindness, and all of these are different practices under that originated in Buddhism, but that I think people get a little worried about using the word Buddhism. I understand why, so they just kind of blanket the term mindfulness over all of it. But that's very Buddhist nerdy, mindfulness nerdy stuff, so uh, you could stop me if I'm getting too far into it. No, and uh, you know, you mentioned how you can have mindfulness in so many different areas. You mentioned mindfulness in eating. While I was reading your book, you have a short chapter on mindfulness in eating. And you talk about uh, a clementine and peeling a clementine, like, no, all the sensations that come with that. As I was reading that book, that chapter, I am, I swear, I smelled the clementine. There was no, there was no one on the train with me peeling a clementine, but I smelled it. And it was so, just the way you were kind of writing about it made me kind of feel mindful uh, just in that moment. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about how you speak to that we are now in a meditation generation that many people right now millennials or whatever you want to call this generation uh they're really seeking out opportunities for meditation because we're in such a high stress world we're so addicted to our phones we're so addicted to social media that we need to kind of have this break now for someone like myself and like you even you know we live in new york city and there's so much going on. 
uh, I'm constantly trying to figure out what my next thing is that I'm doing. My schedule is crazy. For me, I'm thinking, you know, the idea alone of finding time to meditate stresses me out. I'm like, how, how can I put time away to do not nothing, but to, you know, separate from the rest of the world for a little while? That is the stressor to me. How do I get over that? How does someone get over that, that idea? It's a really good question, especially for us New Yorkers. Uh, there's a joke that's not really a joke, but a little bit of a joke that goes, um, everybody should meditate uh, at least 10 minutes a day. And if you're really busy, then you should meditate 20 minutes a day. Huh. And the idea is it's like not just because... Um, it's it's almost like I mean there's a Jewish podcast I can say like Dafka because we're so busy because New York is New York that it becomes overwhelming that like our stress levels are higher it's very hard to sleep at night many times and our addictions to our devices are for real and these things are um, detriments to our health and our well being so. The question is, how are you going to, all of this busyness, all of this running around, in what kind of container or frame are you going to hold it in your life? You don't have to meditate. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to chase anyone. It's, it's not for everyone. But I think for me, it's sort of like the same way, reason why we go to the gym or why we take care of ourselves at all. It's, it is time kind of as you say, like taken out of a schedule, but it's also time that then gives you yourself back. So it's a way of sort of dropping back into yourself and then you can continue your very busy day in a totally different frame that, um, that kind of deepens and enlivens and enriches every other piece of what you're doing. So, um, if you've ever had the experience of, you know, coming off of like a really good gym workout or a really good yoga class and you just feel like the world is alive for me right now. I can handle complex problems better than I could before I went in. I'm taking, I'm acting less reactively with my friends or partners. Um, that is, uh, that is the practice of meditation. So, uh, so it's not so much like another thing on your to-do list to me, it's the frame that holds the entire to-do list. I'm thinking now about people who might have actual, you know, hyperactivity. People who are, there's a lot of people being medicated today um, who have ADHD or similar uh, challenges staying focused. And I think for for those people, how can they, have, have you seen people who have become successful in meditation and, you know, really putting that time, that 10 or 20 minutes even aside from meditation when they can't do, when they can't sit still in other contexts? Yes. And actually there are specific people that have both done research and have also honed practices that are better for people with ADD and ADHD. Um, because not all meditation practices are appropriate for all people at all times. And so, um, so I think that there are, that 
again, like it's actually the practice that can help people who have ADD. It just depends on make sure you do, you're doing one that the research is showing is particularly right for you. Mm-hmm. And that might be one that where you um, count your breaths rather than, you know, you're just sitting in nothingness of like the moment or, you know, ways to actually use the muscles that will also help in, in your ADD. I have to admit, I am completely not an expert in this, but my stepfather actually is, and he has done a lot of work in this area, and I know a lot of other people have done a lot of work in this area. You know, it seems as if, you know, as I'm like hearing you talk about this, it seems in some ways, and also through reading your book, that there's a lot of almost intentional contradictions that you make in meditation, that you're putting time aside for this to make more time for yourself. You even have a chapter uh, in towards the end of the book um, that's based on teaching from Buddha called Your Hair is on Fire and Everything is Okay. It just seems like there's constantly these really intentional contradictions. So I'm interested um, in how do these contradictions impact self-awareness and your overall mindfulness? It's interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of the Buddhist um, tradition and history is one of saying two contradictory things at the same time so that not to be annoying, which sometimes it can be, but to actually crack through your brain so that your your mind can't process it in the normal way it processes information Mm. and then it might crack and open into a different way of understanding Mm. things and the the, you know the classic example of that is like what is the sound of one hand clapping and you you try and think like wait what is the sound nope doesn't work can't think of it and like something is supposed to kind of crack in that cognitive process Um, and there's a whole lot of koans where little things happen, little stories happen. And, and then you can't reason it through. You have to allow a reasoning to come from a deeper place. And we all have examples of times that's happened in our lives, times when we've been trying to think through a problem. And then let's say we take a shower or we go for a run or, you know, whatever, something happens, fall asleep. And then all of a sudden we find the answer from like a left field, from a different quadrant. And I think that's, that might be the truth underneath a lot of these contradictions. They're very much, they're contradictions there for you to be able to more or less kind of get a sense of who you are. So you can look at the things around you and see how you kind of contradict from them, how you, I I again sense a lot of it's about like finding your uniqueness. That's right. Or trusting your own experience rather than trying to think about it. Sort of like being like, if I told you, um, what does a, um, gumba tastes like and you you're like i don't know what a gumba is i don't know and i can try and describe it to you it can use terms that you do know i can say it's a little like this it's a little like this but if you don't taste it yourself it it doesn't you're not going to reason your way to understanding what it tastes like and so i think the the tricky part about writing about meditation is that at some point you got to like sit and practice for yourself and see how these things manifest wonderful can you talk a little bit about um, there's this great story that you bring up, and I don't want to give away everything in the book, but you do mention uh, Rabbi Zusha 
and about the story about how he, the way he feels towards the end of his life, reflecting on it in this very mindfulness way, what that story has meant for you, and you share a little bit about it? Sure. Well, first of all, Rabbi Zusha, for those of you that don't know, is awesome. Like so many, so much of the stuff that he talks about and says, like he believes in restorative justice and he, you know, really believes in like the higher nature of people, even who have done wrong things. And he's just very cool. And then there's this um, story about when he's dying and it's probably his most famous story. And he's crying on his deathbed and his students are like, ask him, why are you crying? You, know, you did so many wonderful things in your life. You're obviously going to get into like Olam Haba and, and, and this kind of heavenly realm. And he says, I'm crying, not be, I'm crying because when I get there, when, when I get to meet God, God's not going to ask me, why weren't you more like Abraham? Or why weren't you more like Moses? God's going to ask me, why weren't you more like Zusha? And it's this kind of gorgeous, beautiful moment of, for, for me and for maybe all of us to ask ourselves, like, are we really embodying ourselves, not anyone else, but like our true selves, the people who we are meant to be, our authentic voice? Um, are we being true to that? Are we finding a path for that? Are we touching into that? And are we living that way in the world? And I, const I constantly have to come back to that question because we get derailed by so many things. But I think it's a beautiful story. And I think just kind of to wrap that up, you have a really wonderful line um, in your book, in the introduction, that you say, I have come to believe that any happiness and freedom I've experienced has come from within the mess, not from overcoming it. And I think that's so important that we constantly go out of our way to try to change ourselves, to try to, you know, push away things that, you know, we don't like, but instead taking the moment to look at it and embrace it and try to challenge it within ourselves and to grow from it. Very reminiscent for me of positive psychology. It's something that I studied a lot of. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for speaking with me today. Uh, your book is called What Now? Meditation for Your 20s and Beyond. It was a wonderful read. I'm looking forward to rereading it, not on train this time, but actually taking <laughs> some time um, and really kind of taking it all in. Uh, where can they go? Where can people go and buy this book? You can buy the book anywhere that books are sold. Um, and you can find out about, I'm doing a lot of events related to the book all over the country. So you can find out more about both the book and about me and uh, the classes I teach at yaelshy.com. Despite my introduction being critical of the Thanksgiving history, there is something very powerful, I believe, in expressing thanks to both the earth itself, which gives of itself every day for our nourishment and shelter, as well as the people who provide us those higher level comforts, which sustain us and give us the will to move along day after day. And with that, I want to say thank you again to Yael for opening up my world to meditation and providing divergent ways of taking in the world. And for all those listening, if you want to get a great holiday gift, I highly encourage you to pick up Yael's new book, What Now? I also, of course, want to thank all of my listeners for giving me an opportunity to hopefully provide content that you find gripping as well. This Thanksgiving Thursday, I will be attending the Day of Mourning in Plymouth, Massachusetts with my sister as I did last year. While this is not much of an event for documenting, I will try to get a few pictures or moments, which I will share on my Instagram page at The Newest Jewish. In terms of the future of this podcast, 
I hope to keep bringing in exceptional thought leaders like Aaron Davidman, Abby Stein, Rabbi Rachel Grant Meyer, April Baskin, and Yael Shai. As you may or may not know, I had no experience in podcasting prior to this venture, so I hope you reach out if you like the content, have ideas, or just would like to be willing to give a review, like, or share. Thank you again, and this has been another installment of The Newish Jewish.